0: You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should, too.
1: Hi there, this is Raj Law, and I'm joined by Doug Morrow. Doug's actually a director at Sustainalytics, which is an award-winning thematic research team. His work's broadly focused on exploring the investment risks and opportunities associated with ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Governance. Uh, including things like climate change, water scarcity, gender diversity, energy transition, uh, as well as health and wellness. He's consulted with institutional investors, asset management startups, and multilateral organizations on ESG integration strategies across multiple asset classes, including equities, fixed incomes, and alternatives. Uh, He also holds an MBA from the University of Toronto and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of British Columbia. Doug, thanks very much for joining us today. You're welcome. So maybe we can start at the very top, and you can start with kind of just explaining what uh, ESG is. It seems to be quite a, a, an important buzz, I'll call it, acronym at the moment, where a lot of, uh, especially the younger investors, want their investments to, to to make an impact. So why don't we just talk generally first about defining what ESG means to you?
0: Sure, sure. We can start. We can start with that. So uh, essentially, what it's about is about it's this idea of taking corporate ESG information. So uh corporate disclosure on environmental, social and governance issues such as climate change or your health and safety, community level performance, et cetera, and finding ways to integrate that into an investor's investment process. Now there's all sorts of different ways that this that this can be done. It ranges from uh exclusionary screening, which I kind of describe as as um, you know, ESG version 1.0 to much more sophisticated attempts in terms of integrating this into actual security selection uh, and even weighting in, in portfolios. So we've definitely seen that, that shift over time moving from more of the, um, you know, the ethical side to uh, a complete mainstreaming of uh, of ESG.
1: So how do you, how do you develop clear definitions? Because I've often, uh, come across ESG strategies and wondered how they actually end up getting defined, uh, in terms of being categorized as ESG friendly.
0: Yeah, it's true. There's no industry standard definition and you definitely see, um, you know, varying approaches that are used in the market. That's, that's for sure. Um, if you think about the evolution though, I think there's a reasonably clear, uh, history that's taken place. It, It definitely started off, um, with this acronym of SRI, so Socially Responsible Investing, that really emerged in the the 1970s based on um, a lot of church groups and things like that, Um, you know, Greenpeace, and, and, you know, very much focused on the ethical side. But we've really – the acronym ESG, so Environmental Social and Governance, has really taken hold, um, you know, especially over the last, uh, you know, 10 years. And this is very different. It's – as I said before, it's not about um, ethics, although there certainly are – investors who, you know, use exclusionary screens, um, but very much the action today and the future direction is all about this idea of financial materiality, you know, connection between ESG and financial materiality, um, and then you mentioned, you know, buzz. you know, certainly another branch of ESG, if you will, is impact investing, which um, I, I consider that as an offshoot or a subcomponent of, of ESG overall that tends to take place in, in private markets with investors trying to, uh, you know, achieve um, targeted environmental and social uh, outcomes. Uh, so I, I sort of see that as a branch. But, yeah, overall, the movement has, um, you know, shifted from, from this idea of ethics towards financial materiality and how ESG can improve investment returns.
1: So how are uh, portfolio managers using ESG strategies Within either you know their separately managed accounts or within perhaps some of the mutual funds or other funds that they're they're running,
0: sure, so there are a variety of different ways that this can be done uh, and, and indeed we're seeing new applications that um You know, we haven't seen it in in years gone past, so there's there's still evolution taking place. I would say, like I said, um, sort of the early days and perhaps the simplest application would simply be removing companies that do not meet certain ESG criteria, you know, whatever the case might be uh from an investable universe. So that's quite a common uh technique. You know, certainly lots of our clients use that. An example might be companies that get caught up in a in a important controversy or product recall like like Volkswagen for instance or um, something on the corruption side like what happened at Petrobras in the last few years. Um, you could simply uh remove these companies from from your investable universe. That that's one way. Um, the shift that we've seen over time and this, this mirrors the broader industry shift that I talked about from, from ethics to financial materiality. It's more about picking, uh, using ESG as positive screens. So, you know, picking, um, uh, you know, top performers within industries. Uh, that's a very, very common technique. It's called, it's called best in class. So you're using ESG information and combining it with, uh, other inputs that, conventional manager might use, such as fundamentals ratios, uh, et cetera, and using that and combining it together to make, you know, the best possible investment decision for uh, for the client.
1: So we executed a survey uh, to investment advisors a couple of weeks ago, and one of the questions that we actually had in there was uh, how important or is uh, ESG a factor in making investment decisions uh, within your client portfolios? And actually only 35% of the advisors, uh, said that it, it's a relevant factor in their, in their investment decision making, uh, process. It, one of the, one of the challenges that I often, you know, come across talking to advisors is, you know, they say that, you know, my investors are with me for returns, uh, and, you know, if they want to participate in ESG activities, they can donate to charities. How do you, how do you address that? First of all, second of all, that number of 35% that I mentioned, I'm assuming that we're going to see significant growth in that number of, of of individuals that use it as a screening process, but maybe you could address that as well.
0: Yeah, I would expect to see that number shift over time without a doubt, you know, certainly as the millennials come online and um, that, that transfer of wealth that we keep reading about in the in the papers and the media, the greatest transfer of wealth um, in the history of the world is, is taking place and it's well documented that millennials uh, put a much higher degree of emphasis on, on ESG and, you know, broader societal concerns than uh, than the boomers did. So I think that's going to help, you know, boost, boost that number. Um you know, as, as to this idea of a drag on returns, you know, certainly that perception is out there. My only comment would simply be that it, it does fly in the face of rigorous empirical evidence and practitioner evidence. So there's a multitude of studies I could, I could point to that have shown that in actual fact, companies that perform well on, on ESG indicators tend to make better long-term financial bets. Uh, there's a whole literature as to why that might be the case. We, we, we certainly see evidence of top ESG performers attracting and retaining better talent. Um, they have a reduced likelihood of incurring, you know, regulatory fines and, and penalties. Better marketing of their goods and services, and this all gets thrown into um, into the share price. So I would say uh, it's it's definitely not a trade-off. Uh, these companies tend to make better uh, long-term financial bets.
1: So last year, I think there was about 150 billion uh, in uh, that was gathered into green bonds. How are actually bond issuers uh, innovating in the fixed income industry related to you know sustainable bonds, etc.?
0: Yeah, that's certainly been a hot button issue in the industry overall. Right now, uh, green bonds. You're right, um, 100, over 150 billion. Issued in 2017, and that was up uh, about 78% from uh, from 2016. So you know clearly we're seeing enormous uh, enormous growth. Uh, as as for the the issuers that you know or the uh, the, the rating agencies, the big three S&P, Moody's, and Fitch, uh, you know certainly this is on their radar, and uh, all three of them have made overtures in the last few years about. Um, You know, not only about green bonds, but about this broader idea of uh, to what extent ESG information might influence influence their ratings. The way I would characterize it is up until now, most of the the conversations and what I've seen coming out of the agencies has been more um, uh, ad hoc and implicit. I think in the future, what we're going to find as – as the world continues down this pathway, we're going to find more systematic efforts to capture a firm's uh, ESG performance and, and, and embed that in, into, its, uh, into its credit rating. Um, but, yeah, um, just to circle back, yeah, green bonds, absolutely, it's a, it's a hot-button, uh, as I said, hot-button issue for the industry as a whole and, uh, and a really exciting one as well if you think about it's not just countries issuing uh, green bonds, it's also uh, indeed corporations as we've seen with, with Apple and, and, and others.
1: Yeah, I think Starbucks issued a sustainability bond, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Starbucks with a sustainability bond, and and Apple, and um, uh, Unilever. I think was one of the first. And essentially, what these companies are doing, and and the countries at you know at, at the at the sovereign level, are what makes these different is simply that the proceeds from the issue are ring fenced. And, and channeled into specific green, uh, projects or sustainability projects in, in the case of in Starbucks. So, you know, that's, that's the, um, the fundamental difference with conventional debt.
1: So I know we talked a little bit about the millennials, uh, population and, y- you know, I, I think I've seen many of the similar, same reports that you have, which talks about the greatest wealth transfer of history, uh, and that their investors, their investment, uh, they want their investment to actually make a positive impact on society. How does it work for institutional investors? How are they looking at ESG strategies? Well,
0: it's it's part of this broader shift again that that I mentioned earlier. So institutional investors, for for a whole you know different basket of reasons, um, I would argue it you'd be hard pressed these days to find an institutional investor. Um you know, for example, in, in RFPs to outsource uh, mandates to managers, you'd be hard-pressed to find one, certainly in Europe, um, and I would argue even increasingly in, in the U.S. And, and Canada, that doesn't have a line item on ESG. So, in other words, asset owners around the world are definitely raising the ESG bar. Uh, managers, in turn, are responding by beefing up their ESG credentials, you know, building out their teams. You know, developing their own um, you know ESG products and, and strategies, and and conducting research, and and you know trying to develop their own their own take on it. You know, absolutely, that's that's a trend we're seeing. Um, it's it's not just about Europe and North America though. I was on the phone just last week with a, a large asset owner in in Japan. Uh, tremendous movement going on right now in Japan, um, you know, Singapore, and other and other um, uh, you know Asian markets. So, I view it very much as a global trend. You could you could definitely argue Europe had uh you know had the head start but i would say um these other markets uh, are rapidly closing the gap
1: so do you have a favorite area of esg investing is there one area that really you know catches your attention something like water or uh or electric vehicles or something of that nature or is it all broad? yeah actually,
0: <laughs> it is broad and and you know um it's interesting you mentioned water, so actually that is um, coincidentally something that I follow quite closely. My team has put uh, a re- we put a few different reports on a- the scene out over the last few years uh, I think despite all the attention it has it has received um, in terms of the uptick, it's still an issue that I believe is uh, is vastly under resourced and sort of off the radar screen of um, Um, of investors, and and this is to their detriment in my view. Um, I I could rifle a number of stats at you uh, – the nature of the problem, and I'll do this in about 20 or 30 seconds, is simply that um, demand for water is already outstripping what we call sustainable uh, supply, so the amount of water that can be delivered sustainably year-on-year. Um, I think too often there's a negative spin put on it in, in the media. When I look at it, I see tremendous opportunity for investors. Um, you know, desalination technologies um, historically have been, you know, quite expensive, sort of in the 70 cents per uh, per cubic meter range, but they're coming down. There's all kinds of companies exploring that. Uh, recycled wastewater, so investing in water utilities such as, um, you know, there's obviously the big ones like Severn Trent, you know, lots of action here. Um, and infrastructure. So I think that companies that produce the infrastructure that we are going to need to help address this problem, and spending, by the way, has been forecasted at $25 trillion in the next 20 years. I think the companies that make uh, the smart meters, the pumps, the valves, the water pipelines, uh, such as Sulzer in, in Switzerland and others, uh, these are all, the fundamentals are, are really quite attractive. So yeah, this is certainly an issue that's near and dear to uh, to my heart. Not the only one, of course, that we look at, but um, you know, definitely something that I'm
1: interested in. So, when investors are looking at evaluating a mutual fund or an ETF, how do they actually find out uh, whether it it, w- it would fit into an ESG category?
0: Um, it depends on the relationship the asset manager has. Um, you know, obviously. You know, Sustainalytics has relationships with different organizations, you know, such as Morningstar and others that provide uh, ratings of um, of mutual funds. Um, you know, so that would you know that would certainly be one way. Um, I would encourage uh, you know investors and, and clients who are interested um, and who are using the advisor. We talked earlier about you know about advisors and the role that they play in this space you know to pose questions to their advisors. You know sometimes in my experience, the advisors will say, well you know we're not getting uh, you know questions from you know, from our clients, so you know we're we're in turn not you know not pushing. So I would say uh, you know clients can certainly ask their advisor questions about how this uh, particular fund stacks up. on on ESG measures such as emissions. I mean, obviously, climate change is, you know, sort of the number one or certainly the number one or number two ESG issue right now. You could say, you know, talk a little bit about how this fund performs on on emissions, uh, things like that.
1: So before we close off, uh, what are your top two or three predictions for your industry over the next five or ten years? Uh, I would say uh,
0: this is probably not a heroic prediction but i would say we're we're going to find a a continued mainstreaming i mean that's certainly in line with uh, with historic trends but i think just the way the world is trending and the fact that a lot of these problems or which which i like to also think of as opportunities they're not getting um you know any less important over time like climate change water scarcity etc are becoming uh heightened so i think that's um going to continue to, you know, to push up the fundamentals uh, of, of ESG. So I think we'll see a continued mainstreaming. Um, I think another trend is um, is ESG and quant strategies. So it's not just active, you know, fundamental managers who are exploiting this growing um, body of information that the corporations are disclosing now. Uh, it's also hedge funds, which I think is quite telling. Um, hedge funds are increasingly finding ways to, to, to use this information in their models to try and... Um, improve risk adjusted returns so I think we're going to find more and more um, you know discourse about ESG as a factor in, in quant strategies and I think the third trend that I would flag for the listeners is simply this this idea of uh, of more regulation and scrutiny and Raj you alluded to this earlier about the ESG data inputs you know the old expression garbage in garbage out I think is, is still is still applicable and um, well while, while there certainly have been improvements in data quality you know, over the last uh, five to ten years, I think in the future uh, we're going to find much more uh, regulatory emphasis and, and investor scrutiny on, um, on these inputs, such as emissions and energy use, etc. Great.
1: Thank you very much for your time today, Doug. This was uh, very interesting. Uh,
0: you're welcome, Raj. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to The Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.